Hello and welcome to Coffee with Candice. I'm your host, Candice Mama. I am so incredibly excited to be speaking to today's guest. He is the former CEO of Goldman Sachs Sub-Saharan Africa, a business maverick, a senior fellow and lecturer at Yale University, and a soon-to-be author. Colin Coleman is all of that and so much more, and I cannot wait to jump into this conversation. If you like it, please like, share, and subscribe. And without further ado, here's Colin. Hello. How are you, Colin? Very good. Yourself? Good. I'm so honored that you took the time to speak to me. I know how busy you are. Not at all. Not at all. It's one of those days, but there I am. <laughs> no, I love it. So, so, how's it been being back in the US? So, no, it's been um, it's been interesting. I um, I arrived uh, in the US on the first September. I, by the fifth of September, I had COVID, so I had ten days of uh, of getting through uh, the COVID experience, which was uh, not that pleasant. It was like having a very bad flu, but a mild COVID, I would say. So I had, you know, high temperatures and fever, loss of appetite, loss of, which was good for me because I've now I've lost weight. So I'm far more, far more handsome now. Um, um, and um, lost sense of taste. Uh, so I had 10 days going through it. The, uh, I would say the good and bad experiences here, they were interesting. The one was um, my test, because once I realized I, I had it, I was actually away on, in the Hamptons for the weekend. By the time I, I realized I had it and got back, I took the test. It took five days for the test to come back in New York. So it, it really made a mockery of contact tracing or anything like that. Um, because by the time I was recovering was when I actually got the test result that I had been positive. <laughs> so then I had the New York Health Department and various uh, people doing contact tracing and so on and so forth. They were very effective and they offered to put me up in a hotel free of charge and they offered to bring me meals and they offered thermometers and oximeters and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and um, I mean, unbelievable resources, but the main thing was the, the test uh, took five days. So by the time all this arrived at my door, I was already getting better. Uh, anyway, I recovered fully and uh, everything has been fine. I've been teaching, uh, I'm writing quite a bit, um, trying to enjoy the city. The city is a bit of the beauty and the beast all at once without the shine. I call it because the beauty is uh, there's a lot of outdoor dining because you don't dine indoors so much. They have opened now restaurants for indoor dining because of the it's getting into winter season. But um, it's beautiful pavement seating uh, and it's very very um, you know lively out on the out on the streets. That's very nice. The museums are open, but the jazz clubs are not. So that's not good for me and there's a lot of homelessness on the streets you know a lot of and it's uh, quite a lot of bitter and angry people walking around so you, you kind of got that edge that's come back to new york 
Anyway, I'm sure you don't want to go on and on about these experiences, but it is interesting times. The election is around the corner, so I'm paying a lot of attention to U.S. politics, what's going on. Uh, and, you know, it's pretty much um, on the edge as to what's going to happen. Yeah. And what's your feeling about that? What are you leaning towards? I think it looks, the polls look and seem to indicate that Biden is headed for a strong victory. Uh, but all of the narrative being built up by the Republicans and by the Trump administration is that they're going to challenge the result and you're going to have some kind of litigation process and unlikely that you will have a winner declared for some time. And the possibility that's you know, being spoken about by informed people of some kind of um, street-level protests leading to conflict and counter-conflict and the militias that are on the right wing, you know, there's a real potential that that situation could lead to a very ugly set of confrontations uh, in the U.S. I don't think you're talking civil war territory, but you are talking potential violence in the streets if the combination of the election results uh, being litigated uh, and it takes too long and there's a feeling of, of lack of credibility of the result, whatever it is. So there's, um, there's some reason for concern you know, about where this is all headed. Hmm. That sounds like you chose an incredible time to go to Yale. <laughs> <laughs> So I'll be done at the end of um, November. Um, the way they, the universities are all working, Yale included, is uh, Thanksgiving, which is the end of November, uh, when all the kids go back to their families. So they travel back, that they don't return to the campuses because they're concerned about the COVID environment. So the in-person classes, which I'm doing, you know, because my, my classes are seminar style for graduates, both uh, MBAs and public policy graduates um, will only continue to the end of November. And then after the end of November, uh, the last couple of classes will be virtual. So yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's going to have been one year of the Yale experience and then I'll be home. Oh, and how was the Yale experience? Uh, I, I've loved it, you know, I, I really love it. Look, firstly, it's a magnificent campus, a great institution. Um, and, you know, the people in this particular department I'm part of, which is the Jackson Institute, uh, include really interesting people like Stephen Roach, the ex-Morgan Stanley economist, Howard Dean, who was the presidential candidate and governor of Vermont, John Podesta, who was... Um, President Obama's chief of staff, uh, and a bunch of econ other economists and authors, uh, one by the name of Janine Giovanni, who was a war correspondent in Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan, uh, Bosnia, on which a, a movie is based about her, um, a former um, head of uh, DFID in the UK, uh, who was um, a candidate for prime minister, who was eaten by Boris Johnson. Uh, you know, these are the kinds of people that are in the faculty with me. So it's, it's fascinating. Another person was the deputy governor of the Bank of India, uh, Rakesh Mahan. So 
I mean, so it's been, it's been great meeting these people, getting to know them. Um, and then the students have been fantastic, incredibly bright, very talented, you know, um, with, with um, strong ambition. Um, and uh, they, they're getting the most out of my class. And the classes are pretty robust conversations. I just did a class on Nigeria last week. And I got the head of CNN in Nigeria, chief correspondent, and uh, somebody who leads an investment bank in Nigeria on the Zoom. These Zoom things are very, uh, they, they're very innovative. You know, you put them to your use, they can be very helpful. And we had a fantastic class on Nigeria and the, the developments there, which aren't much known that, you know, Nigeria is experiencing quite a lot of street protests from the youth against police violence. And this is very unusual in Nigeria because of its military dictatorship past. People are, don't take to the streets very easily because they have a long memory of, um, of police repression in Nigeria. But it sounds like Nigeria is on the edge, as many countries are at the moment. But we had a great class, and uh, this week we're going to do Ethiopia. Um, and uh, I call it the Chinese model of industrialization because... Um, what Ethiopia is experimenting is with some kind of African application of uh, Chinese capitalism, uh, you know, building industrial parks, purposing industrialization infrastructure in, into industrialization uh, and mobilizing capital in a very specific way to try and get investment. And they've been very successful. They've had 10% growth, you know, in a country that's a hundred million people, now for quite some time pre-COVID, so we'll uh, talk about that on Friday. Oh wow! And have you done South Africa yet? So I had to, I did three classes on South Africa um, because of its importance. So the first class was on the lessons of business involvement in the transition from the eighties through to ninety four, and helping you know which I was very personally involved in. Uh, so it was very much about the transition from apartheid to constitutional democracy. Then I taught uh, the, uh, the lessons of the second class was on the lessons of what's happened um, since 1994 till now. And the last class was on scenarios for the future. You know, and is Sarah going to be able to turn around? Uh, the issues in South Africa and make a success of it. So uh, it was a fascinating, fascinating um, series of classes. And the purpose from a student's point of view is to try, as I, I talk to them, to make a judgment, you know, given that they're now in their 20s and have a career ahead of them, you know, um, is South Africa, Nigeria and Ethiopia uh, as big engines in Africa, are they going to make it? You know, is there, is, what is the kind of outcomes? Is it going to be a road downhill in South Africa or a hybrid where we muddle along or is it going to be, you know, returning to higher growth rates and a turnaround story? Same for Nigeria, same for Ethiopia because if the big countries do well, then Africa's engines are going to be firing. If the big countries don't do well, it doesn't matter what happens in the smaller countries, really. 
um, you a precondition for Africa to work is to have these big countries really do well. So, yeah, that's that's uh, that's at least the objective of the class. So, you know, at the end we had a poll amongst the students on those three scenarios on South Africa, and twelve, well, basically about eighty percent of the students uh, picked the hybrid uh, outcome. Uh, which is not surprising. I would have picked the hybrid outcome, and I've never taken mm. any of your classes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You don't even need to come to one of my classes. <laughs> no, but you mentioned something about, you know, and that's actually how we met. Um, you've got a fascinating family. You've, you come from a family of activists, and you yourself have been an activist. And for those people who don't know this about you, I want you to tell us just a little bit about that. What was it like growing up in that kind of family? And what was it like being an activist in South Africa? Well, you'll have to read my book when it comes out. Uh, <laughs> you'll have to host a party for me, Candice. Uh, but... Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the experience re was really triggered. We, I had a, a, a liberal progressive family, but they were passive until my brother was detained in 1981 uh, in solitary confinement for six months in the same cell block as Neil Agate and a whole bunch of other people. Neil, um, you know, died in detention. Uh, and Keith was then released and unbanned, uh, and banned. Um, so he he was a journalist and he couldn't write or he couldn't congregate with more than one person. So that whole event uh, of the police knocking on my door and then leading to Keith's detention and ultimately his release and all of that was a great shock to our family and galvanized the whole family into activism. My elder brother had already been active, but my parents became very active in forming something called the Detainees Parents Support Committee, which is a human rights organization. And given what was subsequently the whole through the 1980s, you know, uh, tens of thousands of people in detention, it became a, a very important organization for detainees families to go to to get guidance as to what to do and for detainees themselves uh, to report how they were treated and then after they were released to go and report affidavits. So my mother literally took for 10 years affidavits mostly about torture uh, that the detainees had experienced at the hands of the police at that time. Um, and my father was, you know, very active in uh, collating information and disseminating information. And they were very famous globally for, for what they had done. I mean, they, they received rewards from Francois Mitterrand and, uh, you know, were fated in the United States for their work and so on and so forth. And then my, my brother, Neil, was very involved in the democratic movement, you know, and particularly in the trade union movement and was in Kusati for, for almost 30 years. Uh, he just left Kostati last year and created a economic, um, uh, an institute of economic justice, which is looking at economic policy. Uh, and I was very involved in 1981. From 1981, I was studying architecture, but I was very involved in 
um, student politics in the National Union of South African Students, in the United Democratic Front, in the end conscription campaign. I refused to go to the army on political grounds, which was a criminal offence. Some of the some of those that made those public statements were put in criminal jail, like David Bruce, who's a bit of a hero. Um, and he spent several years with hardened criminals in criminal jail until he was released prior to the elections. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, and, and I joined the underground of the African National Congress. Um, so I was, uh, I was um, in the thick of it, yeah. Uh, and from and 1988 onwards, when I graduated as an architect, I joined a, a small group of business people who were starting to see what they could do to broker uh, peace and economic stabilization in South Africa. And that grew quite substantially into a facilitating body that was both bilaterally speaking between business and um, political organizations, but became a facilitating body because business was sort of trusted by those that organization was sort of trusted to facilitate talks. So we facilitated the peace accord. We started to act as secretariat to the CODESA talks um, and ultimately helped. I, I was very involved in the mediation with Henry Kissinger right at the end, just before the elections, which was the last class attempt that failed to get the parties all into the election. And on the back of the mediation collapsing, managed to facilitate the agreement that brought Encarta in uh, when Butelezi realized it was, um, it was necessary for him to come to the election about two weeks before the election date. So the difference between him coming in and not coming in was very, very critical to peace at the time. And as I say, you read all about it in my book then when it comes out next year. You know, I'm excited for your book. I'm so excited. <laughs> I want to know, like, how, you know, growing up in a situation like that, experiencing things like that, how does one keep hope alive? Because I think now, you know, with COVID, the economic downturn, people are struggling to stay hopeful, to stay optimistic. And yet you were facing situations that were so, it didn't seem like it was going to change. And I want to know, how did you get through it? How did you continue to hope and wake up every day and keep doing what you were doing? Well, there are lots of times, I guess, where I always felt that we had not just faced the apocalypse, that we were over the cliff into the apocalypse. Uh, you know, when Henry Kissinger left and we, we had effectively turned, on the, turned the, our backs as a country on mediation, and we went going naked into the elections, knowing that violence was very likely going to erupt, um, and and you know very serious stores of arms and weapons in everybody's hands. Uh, it just felt completely overwhelming. I guess in a simple way, you know, for those who don't have income, lost jobs, uh, they've got large families to feed they don't know where to go. That's very overwhelming in a very personal way. Um, and, you know, in those moments, um, I think, um, you know, um, you, you have to look around the corner to see what is possible. Um, you know, and 
they say politics is the art of the possible, but it's true also with life. Um, and you, you know, it's, it can be very overwhelming. It can be for, for people very debilitating, but I'm, I'm personally not somebody that can operate in a debilitating sense. Um, you know, I have to be problem solving. I'm just like that. I have to try. So, um, you know, and I, I always sort of see the glass half full. You know, whatever the situation, I try and work out a way. Um, so, you know, I really feel for people. I, I think that, you know, there must be millions of South Africans today who are totally overwhelmed by what they are facing. And each one of them needs to think how best to, what are the resources, who are the people, what are the networks, uh, that can get you through a bad situation and keep at it. Mm. And that optimistic approach, that glass half, you know, full approach, have you always been that way or has it come with age and as you've gone through life or when did it come about? Yeah, I think it has. Um, it, it has been something that I, I think I've, I've sort of had you know, all my life. Um, competitive spirit, you know, I played tennis as a teenager. I was very determined to play at Wimbledon one day. When I realized that it wasn't possible, I sort of just literally cut off after playing, you know, many hours of tennis every day. I just stopped and refocused my attention. Mm. Um, so I guess, you know, that, that spirit has been with me. But I think it's also a function of who are the people around you and what is their style of thinking. Because I think if you think in a very linear way, you know, you tend to deal with life in that way. And I've always um, been taught, you know, by my brothers and people around me that, are, that have been formative to be lateral thinking. And so sit back, see a situation, sit back, try and deconstruct it. And I, I love the word deconstruct because as an architect, you know, I studied de the deconstructivist movement and literally in architecture, what, what the deconstructivists did in that whole art and architecture movement was they would take an object and look at the object, a cube or whatever it is, and pull it apart, pull out the, each element of each part of the cube and give it a new angle, give it a, uh, give it a different facet. And then they would put it back together again in a completely different way. But if you're a, you know, if you're a kind of clear observer, you will see that the elements of that cube, the original cube, exist in the solution that you're now seeing that looks nothing like a cube. So I've always sort of thought of life like that, that you can look at a situation it may not be to your liking, but you can deconstruct it, take out the parts, refashion them, retool them, put them back together in a way that is both the origins of the situation you found, but also a completely different solution, sort of with the elements that you had. So um, I don't know if that helps, but I've always kind of used that approach to try and refashion um, particularly when I'm overwhelmed or have a particular problem, uh, 
try and look at it in a completely different light, but not ignore what's there. You know, you have to you have to use what's there and just retool it. So um, that's 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 I think at the kind of the core of the way I think. Oh, I absolutely love that. I will be using that analogy for my own life because sometimes I think we get so stuck in our minds, right? And we so we're looking at a problem and we're like, this is the thing. It's it can't change. You can't maneuver it. But truthfully, if you step back and you do repurpose it and you look at it differently, usually you get a different outcome. But you mentioned something. So you went from tennis to architecture to economics. Like, what does that transition look like? Like, when you were an architect, I'm pretty sure you weren't like, I'm going to go to Goldman Sachs. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> no, no. So, yeah, I mean, I guess life, um, you know, people people grow up, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up? Um, firstly, I would say my, my grandfather, my mother's father, who was born in Johannesburg in 1886, the year of its founding. So I always say to everyone, I'm truly a Joburger. My, my younger son, who is turning seven in January, you know, is a fourth generation Johannesburg boy. Um, so, and, and white families, people don't think white families have, legacy in the country i mean we know nothing else right so um so i'm like truly a joe burger you know um i'm a joe Berg boy so you know what is this joe Berg boy gonna do well the fact is that i i had this kind of normal childhood in an abnormal society mm. growing up under apartheid and then uh you know decided to go to university and study architecture at the time not really knowing but it was quite a good choice. I think probably now I would have probably benefited more from law or something like that if I'd gone in. But architecture provided a way of thinking that I just, I just explained to you, which was, which was great. And you remember with an architecture drawing, you start with a blank sheet of paper. Yeah. And your, your most important thing that you do with that blank sheet of paper is the first line. Because whatever your first line is that you draw is the seeds of your design. And I think about that when I'm writing a book. It's, you know, what are you going to write? You know, and then you, you think, oh, I'm going to write that. But then your words actually come. So, or an essay or anything. So you, the way you commit your first thing is going to be formative. So anyway, so architecture was useful as a way of thinking. But the truth was the politics of what was going on on the campus. And the campus was a vibrant, you know, deeply conflicted place because of the apartheid environment. Uh, you know, we, the, the education was partly academic in architecture and much more importantly about life and about the non-racial struggle in South Africa and meeting people and forming friendships with many, many people and having real political engagement and discussions, battling the police, fearing for your life, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff that was going on on campus. But life sort of took over, and because of the politics, you know, that sort of pushed me after architecture into this negotiation, facilitating uh, experience, which was effectively almost six years. And in 94, um, actually, it's probably not well known, but um, I was on the ANC electoral list for parliament my name was 166th on the ANC election list 
but I was involved in this nonpartisan organization and I wasn't asked about being st standing on the ANC for the ANC list. So when this list came out, I had to basically make a quick decision and I decided to withdraw my name. I was 31, uh, but effectively going into politics, like in a formal sense at the age of 31, many people, including some of South Africa's top leadership, advised me against it saying, you know, go and tool yourself, skill yourself, get financially independent. And at some stage later, you can always go into politics, but um, you'll be much more useful in the economy. So that's what made me go into banking. So after 94, when the elections were held, I decided to go into the economy. And as it was, I got a lot of offers from financial institutions. I decided not to go into the government related ones, but rather go into the private sector ones. And I worked for Conrad Strauss as the chairman of Standard Bank for, uh, that was my first job. And that mutated into my um, starting a public finance division for Standard Bank under Jacques Marie um, and uh, started an infrastructure fund to drive infrastructure, part public-private partnerships and the funding of that. Uh, and I was there three years, learned the ropes of project and corporate finance there. And then JP Morgan hired me to go to London uh, to learn merger and acquisitions. So I did that in 97. I arrived in London the day that Princess Diana passed away. <clears throat> and I left in 2000 in March uh, when Goldman Sachs headhunted me to come back to South Africa after spending three years in London in the energy, oil, power, uh, merger and acquisition department of JP Morgan in London, which was a great learning experience. I got exposed to a new country, a new product, uh, global banking in a new continent. Uh, it was a, a multiple learning curve. Um, and I was building a young family at the time. Uh, we took one daughter with us to London. We had a daughter in London. And just before I came back, my then wife conceived uh, the first of my two sons. Um, so it was a very uh, interesting time. But effectively, decided to go into banking after, after 94, because from my point of view, the economy was the next site of big challenge. Banking is a fantastic leverage point into all aspects of the economy. Uh, and so I've had 25 years in banking, 20 years at Goldman Sachs, 10 years as a partner at Goldman Sachs, before I retired at the end of last year to go into my new phase, which we can chat about. Oh, wow. And are there any, ever any moments where you're like, oh, I should have been an architect? Or do you take out that spirit in other ways? It's more the latter. You know, I have a few homes and I've taken an active interest in designing and um, decorating those homes. Uh, so I've got homes in Johannesburg. I have a house in Plettenberg Bay, which is more just a beach house, but it's lovely. And I have an apartment in Cape Town. Uh, and the apartment in Cape Town, we just ripped it apart and redid it. And it's one of my, it's a hundred square meters, one of my favorite spaces because it sits right on top of the sea. And uh, it's, um, the concept was basically a cube, like a box. It's a double, a doubles um, volume 
cube. Um, and basically, I, I had this sort of impulse that I wanted to have because I love brass and copper. So we clad the walls and the ceiling with brass, um, studded brass, and then you've got this blue sky and this blue sea right in front of you, this, this view. And it's uh, and I have colorful furniture, so it's just a stunning, stunning place. But yeah, so I, I use my architecture creatively. I love um, I love museums. I love art. I can see a piece behind me yeah. by Guanayan. Um, and um, I love African art. I love Chinese art. And I love going to the museum. So I'll, you'll find me in Guggenheim Museum or Whitney Museum or Museum of Modern Art here in New York as much as I can. Um, because that's my creative side is... Um, uh, is still there. I, I don't play musical instruments. I'd love to. <laughs> I'd love to play the saxophone or play the piano or something, but um, but I don't have any musical talent. Well, you can always take that on now after your book. The saxophone can be the first. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll try. <laughs> no, and I think all of us, after you told us that, I think all of us want to come to your house in Cape Town. So I think the book launch should be there and we should just like marvel in this beauty. <laughs> <laughs> it can't take many people. It's uh, 100 square meters. So uh, we can have a small cocktail party there. We'll take a small cocktail party. <laughs> <laughs> so now we spoke about you know your transition out of Goldman Sachs and into Yale and you're writing your book how is that experience for you like how are you feeling how's it going how's the process uh you, you've done a book so I'm sure you you know it well um it's it's sort of something that I've promised myself I would do because for a few reasons I think there's a story that people need to hear about how business and politics interacts. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the world, you know, the rise of populism and so on, people feel very disengaged. I would say there's a, um, a sense that the establishment is for the rich and the powerful and the connected. Uh, and politics is a one-year ritual you know, once upon a time, every five year ritual uh, for voters. Um, and that's not democracy, you know. Um, so, and, and, and societies can go off in very negative directions, as you're seeing happening in most of the big countries in the world. And there's a rise of populism and, um, and you know, there's, there's, this COVID recovery, I don't know if you heard of the concept of a K-shaped recovery. You know, you have the V-shape. The V-shape is things go down and they come all the way back. The W-shape is they go down, they come back, they go down and they come back. Like, you know, with the, with the, uh, the bursts of the new bursts of COVID that we're expecting in the Northern Hemisphere now and a research and then the economy will close down and then it will come back and then you'll have your W. Well, actually the K-shaped recovery is that you came down um, and then for some, it went up again. And for others, it come, came down. But so 
what it really signifies is for the rich and powerful and the connected, people in the equity markets and so on, you own Apple stock and bloody blah, 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 blah. They've done great. Mm. And for the people who, minorities in these countries, um, the unemployed, the poor, and the lower middle classes, they've suffered enormously because that's what happens with crisis. It tends to be a huge blow to uh, the middle classes and to the poor. Um, and whilst there has been stimulus, uh, you know, like in the United States, the stimulus is running out. They haven't, they haven't yet refinanced the stimulus in South Africa. We'll hear, you know, the COVID 350 rand grant that 5 million people I understand are on has come to an end. And now those people have nothing. We'll hear in the next tomorrow from the president and then in the next week from or two from the, the Minister of Finance of the budget speech, are they going to extend that grant or not? I, I don't know, but I think it would be a shame if they don't because you'll be having 5 million people without any income. So, um, so I th what I'm saying is I think, just back to the book, um, there is a big story to tell about what is the role of business in uh, the political environment and vice versa, and how does business take responsibility for some of these issues around inequality that are driving so many, so such, so much of the political discourse at the moment. Uh, so there's kind of a story to tell there, and I, you know, through the story I've told you already, you know, I have had a lot of experience of that in South Africa, both in uh, my struggle days in the constitutional transition days and in my banking and Goldman Sachs days. Uh, so I've had a lot wide range of, of experience there. And then I think there's a lot of history embedded there that's worth telling, um, a lot of color. And um, I hope that it will be interesting and racy as opposed to boring and academic. So I'm trying to take things that are factual and analytical and put them in a very presentable way so that you know someone in the midwest of america or in the countryside in france will think this is an interesting story and applicable and universally applicable to their situation so anyway that's that's sort of what i'm trying you know and then there's the issue of uh can i maintain discipline in writing and how much time i spend writing and i'm sure you you've been through that so you know the difficulties and i get interrupted a lot so you know I'm, i have greatest plans every day to write four hours the next day and i end up writing for an hour but somehow it's kind of it's still working and it's coming along oh i know the process is so interesting i think at one point, I only took solace in the fact that I would research really famous like authors. And I'd realized, you know, the commonality was none of them really had the time to write. So I was like, oh, thank goodness. And my favorite is Paulo Coelho. And he would speak about, you know, how we'd make these grand plans during the day. And he'd only start writing in, at midnight. And he'd get like an hour in. Then he'd go to bed. And I was like, well, he wrote the greatest book of all time, in my opinion, The Alchemist. And if he could do that, the rest of us are fine, Colin. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Oh, man. So as far as your book is concerned, you said you wanted it to be interesting. So are you going to include a lot of your personal story or are you going to make it like a dual book where people can take those business and political lessons 
while intertwining your personal story or how, how you're envisioning it coming along right now? Yeah, well, I'm a bit shy about talking about my book too much um, because, uh, you know, it's, I, I don't want to say things that, that then are not, uh, are not fulfilled. But I, it is going to be, what I will say, it is going to be a personal story um, wrapped in a framework of my view of the world. And hopefully it'll be an interesting journey for the readers. I'm sure it will be. You've got an interesting story. I know you're not sharing all of it, but I'm going to wait for the book. I'm patient. So one thing I saw you said in an interview was the fact that when you left Goldman Sachs, it gives you a bigger voice to be able to really, you know, speak about Africa and speak about South Africa. So for you, what is this voice? Like what, what is it that you want to bring attention to? What is it that you want to, you know, work towards now that you know you're out of that arena well i'm very focused on the country and i'm very focused on the continent and its contribution to the world i mean in very very simple terms if south africa doesn't work uh, we don't rise you know africa is in a trouble and if africa is in trouble it's got dramatic impact on the rest of the world and for this reason um, today, 17% of the world's population of 7.8 billion people are African, with only 3% of the world's GDP. By 2060, that will be 28% of the world's population. And by the year 2100, it will be 39, call it 40% of the world's population, according to respected scientific population projections. If 40% of the world's population is African, um, and our contribution to growth doesn't rise from this 3%, significantly, we're going to have a humanitarian disaster in the world because there's no way that 40% of the world's population can share, you know, 10, 12% of the world's GDP. So at the current rate, so the question is, what rate do we need to grow at? We need to grow at about 6%, I'm talking across Africa, 6% growth rate per annum for the next 30 years in order for that 28% to be about 12% of the world's GDP. So that's for the world, two things. One is a humanitarian threat and a massive economic opportunity. Because if we do achieve those kinds of growth rates, it'll be the single largest uh, growth driver in the world in the next 30 years. So. That's why I call my Yale course uh, the last frontier of global growth because, you know, Africa could in the next 40 years be the way China has been for the world in the last 40 years, a massive driver of absolute growth rates. Um, but what we know is it's highly unlikely with or without COVID or, you know, other things that the population is going to be much less than 40% of the world by the year 2100. So South Africa, South Africa's um, importance for uh, Africa and Africa's importance in the world are all interlinked. So to my mind, it's critical that South Africa succeeds. Uh, and, you know, this kind of last 10 years of pre-Ramaphosa of Zuma politics has been extremely debilitating. And unfortunately, what we have now is a very shallow democracy. 
You know, we have a democracy that on the surface is a thin veneer of constitutionalism, modern democracy, modern economy. But underneath it is this thick, dark force of the substance of phony capitalism, corruption, state patronage, and a system where effectively much of the environment is one in which the political, the ruling party is used as a transmission belt to uh, effectively get state resources and patronage into the hands of the elite, the party elite, but also into the hands of, of its members, sufficient that the members through social grants and, um, and variety of, of uh, inducements um, keep the party in power. Um, and this is a very uh, bad kind of road that's a slide to the bottom. You know, it's not, this is not going to have a happy ending. So what we need is we need, a, and obviously President Ramaphosa is the person we're hoping will be able to reinvigorate South Africa's democracy so that the democracy is far more functional, that you have a real civil society that's participating fully you know, in, in South Africa's face, a business community that is um, really addressing inequality, really coming to terms with what it means to create wealth and growth, but distribute it in a just way amongst its employees, amongst communities, uh, uh, and so on. So no, we, we, we don't have a problem with business making profit, but that profit is, is far more egalitarian in its distribution. And politicians who, and, and, and government who are not a bigger or a smaller state, but a smarter state, you know, a state that's making things work for people uh, and not just a captured state, you know, getting uh, public servants to be public servants, not to be public employees doing very little and not being efficient and so on and so on. So I, you know, I, I'm quite passionate about those things. One of the things I talked about in a lecture I gave in the University of Cape Town in July, which is online for those who want it, is the need for an e-government platform. And that e-government platform would modernize and revolutionize the way in which government services are um, delivered to people so that you get your home affairs, your, your passport documents, your tax, your... Uh, all of these things, education, health records, uh, you know, so on, online, and you have a biometric, uh, private, secured mobile platform. Everybody has it on their phone. You know, you have that phone and you look it up and you can see. You don't have to go to a government office for a prescription for your domestic worker to get the pills that she needs. So she has to go, you know, stand in a queue for hours and hours for what purpose? So, and that will mean not necessarily that less money is invested in the public service, but smarter money is invested in the public service and more money is released for frontline people to be on the streets as public servants, police, education, you know, teachers, nurses, so on and so forth. And taking out a lot of the back office bureaucracy that is in the government, you know, so it's very expensive. We cannot afford it anymore. So, there are countries like Estonia, Italy, Sweden, others that have made a lot of headway on this new government idea. But it's this sort of rethinking that's needed 
uh, everywhere, by the way. I mean, to get my social security number in the United States, took me two weeks, I had to go to an office in a line, uh, wait in line, very pleasant people, but when I finished and I asked, so can I have my security No, it will be posted to you. I get like something that's like a cardboard piece of paper. It's not even a laminated card. It's like, a, you know, in the, in, the, in the post office two weeks later. I mean, you know, this is America. It should be digital. It should be online. I shouldn't have to stand in a queue. Maybe they need my fingerprints, but that's about it. Hmm. So we, we've got a long way to apply technology the way that, you know, we have Uber and Amazon and all of these things and Netflix and everything online. Um, we've got a long way to apply that in the government environment. And I think that's going to be a wave of the future. Wow. I mean, Colin, I could speak to you forever because you're such a well of wisdom, but you don't have forever. You're a busy man. <laughs> so, so Do you have a lunch to go to or dinner? <laughs> no, I'm I, like, after this, I'm going to bed. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I know you better than that. So, um, but I think for me, wrapping it up, firstly, I'm going to put a link to that lecture because I think people would benefit tremendously from listening to it. Um, but to wrap up and change gears, I want to know if you had a time capsule and you could go to 18-year-old Colin and you could tell yourself anything, what would you say? I'd say you're very fortunate. You're going to go on a ride. That ride is sometimes going to be, you know, a tiger on, um, you're going to feel like a tiger on, on the plains or it's sometimes going to be a flat plane and you'll just ride it and it'll feel beautiful. Sometimes it's going to be really rocky. It's going to be a mountain and you're going to feel like you're falling off. Sometimes you'll injure yourself through your own actions. Sometimes uh, you will uh, feel like you're falling off, but you're not and you just hang on and make the most of it and don't, you know, self injure uh, and, and keep on and just think about where you want to go and just keep going there. Oh, I think all of us will be taking 18 year old Colin's advice. <laughs> <laughs> but Colin, thank you so much. I've loved speaking to you. your wisdom. And I think, all of us have so much to reflect on just based on what you've said here and all the material about you online. Like, I mean, I think I watched you so much this week. I think I might know you better than you know yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely loved this conversation and I know for sure I will be sure to note not to self-injure and to stay focused even when things get hard and we know that this year has been a particularly difficult one. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to like, share and subscribe and I'll speak to you soon.